Welcome to Cato Audio for April 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Cato's Doug Bandow discusses problems of European integration. Writer John Fun puts the Tea Party movement into context. Malou Innocent details the growing consensus against war in Afghanistan. Tad DeHaven details Obama's 2013 budget. And Tucker Carlson discusses this year's political climate. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. One thing that is different from this election cycle, at least with regard to the presidency, than it was in 2008 is that we have this new creature, this new form called the super PAC. I'm talking with John Samples, the director of the Cato Institute Center for Representative Government and author of The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform. And I'm also talking to Steve Simpson, a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. And if anyone can be blamed directly for uh, this thing called the super PAC, we might blame you as well as David Keating and my boss, Ed Crane. Yeah, and the folks over at the Center for Competitive Politics, Brad Smith and Steve Hursting and their colleagues, don't forget about those guys. But yeah, we've been trying to get blamed for this super PAC issue for a long time to no avail. Unfortunately, the media keeps insisting that the reason for super PACs is the Citizens United decision when in fact it's the Speech Now versus FEC decision, which we're coming up on the two-year anniversary of on March 26th decision came out uh, two years ago and has changed the face of politics since that time. Well, let's uh, get a couple clarifications out of the way. What came out of the Citizens United decision is commonly believed to allow unlimited donations to candidates from corporations and unions. This is, of course, completely false. No, that's correct. The Essentially, speech now was a decision uh, by a lower court that essentially applied the principles that were laid out in Citizens United. But to do so, uh, Steve and his colleagues had made the argument that it was always the case that individuals could spend as much as they wanted. Why not, if they decided to associate with one another, which is First Amendment right too, why shouldn't they be allowed to pool their resources to better speak out on political issues? And so, yeah, this was about that and not – it is funny. Just today I was reading in the paper a – and we're going to hear more of this – a member who had been criticized by a PAC in a primary just recent days said exactly that. I just don't know why they're letting all these corporations spend all this money, right? So so the people that are involved most intimately don't even have a real idea of – because, you know, it seems to me that even without Citizens United, the argument of speech now was a pretty good one. And Steve, just detail what that argument was. Yeah, the argument really relates back to Buckley versus Vallejo, where the Supreme Court upheld contribution limits on contributions going from individuals and groups directly to candidates, but it struck down a limit on what's known as independent spending, which is really kind of a fancy campaign finance word for political speech or expenditures for political speech. In essence, the court said that if an individual or groups of individuals want to to get together and they want to spend money to advocate the election or defeat of a candidate, that is core First Amendment speech, and that absolutely has to be protected. If you put a limit on the spending for that speech, you've effectively limited the speech itself. Now, 30 years later, with the evolution of all sorts of campaign finance laws, what you ended up with uh, a couple of years ago, and which David Keating created Speech Now to try to combat, was an odd situation where an individual like a George Soros or some other rich person could spend as much money as he wanted 
to advocate the election or defeat of a candidate. But as soon as he joined with one other person, he became a political committee and a political committee can only accept donations of up to $5,000 under the law as it stood then. So he was suddenly limited to $5,000, which made no sense. And David said, this is crazy. This is ruining the right of association. I mean, people should be able to band together and pool their funds, take advantage of divisions of labor, right? Some people have money, but not talent or knowledge. And other people have talent and knowledge, but not money. They should be able to get together and they should be able to do what Americans have been doing forever. So he asked the FEC, look, if these expenditures are independent of a candidate, in other words, this is what the Supreme Court has always said is core political speech. There's no concern about corrupting a candidate. We just want to spend money on speech. Why can't we get together and do that? The FEC said, sorry, our rules are, are supreme. You can only raise $5,000 a piece. And that, of course, severely limits the speakers. So we, on behalf of David, along with the Center for Competitive Politics, took the FEC to court, and we won a decision not long after the Citizens United decision saying, essentially, ever since the, uh, you know, even in the modern era of campaign finance, independent expenditures are core political speech, and you can't limit them. So just to reiterate, George Soros could spend all he wanted speaking out uh, about candidates, but five guys in a cigar box full of money Yep, they're limited. Doing it. Right. And the argument there was really just kind of a form over substance type of campaign finance argument. What they were saying is when five people are getting together and contributing the money to a group they've created, that's a quote contribution. And under the campaign finance laws, we can limit contributions, right? Whereas if you spend it on your own, that's a quote expenditure, and we're not allowed to limit that. This is how the FEC operates. They are bureaucrats. They follow the law to the absolute letter. And of course, that's ridiculous because the ultimate point that the Supreme Court was making is if the money's going to a candidate, that could pose a problem or create this notion of corruption. But if it's just being spent on speech, there's no issue there and you can't limit it. This is, I mean, Steve's pointing back to what many people have long realized was a problem with Buckley versus Vallejo, which is to talk about contributions being one thing and having lesser First Amendment protection and then flipping over and saying, ah, but spending, spending's totally different. There's, uh, you know, it's, they're both forms of spending. And it always seemed to me that uh, it was very hard to distinguish them and to try to draw distinctions on First Amendment grounds was also a mistake. There are a lot of kind of weird tensions and contributions that have arisen in the campaign finance laws, both because in my view, the laws are unworkable. They try to do the impossible, which is to prevent people from affecting or influencing elections, which they shouldn't try to do. And it's frankly impossible to do, but also because of some of the things that the court did in Buckley. And Buckley was in a lot of ways a compromise decision. So yes, government, you can limit money going directly to a candidate. No, you can't limit it going directly to speech. So what does a person say? Okay, so I'm limited to 2,500 bucks that I can give to a candidate. Does he sit down and say, oh, well, that's it. That's all I'm going to do? No, of course not. They go out and they spend the money on their own. And then, of course, you have the folks who are supporting the laws say, well, wait a second. We can't have that. You're circumventing the laws. This is a loophole. Now we need to limit you know, more and more and more. And, then, and what you see over the three decades since we've had these laws is people finding ways around them and the reformers trying to always close those down, which limits speech. And this mention of circumvention reminds me of something that's actually about the future, too, I think, which is that there's this odd thing about in the campaign finance law about limitations on uh, how much parties can spend in support of their candidates. And that was done as a way of preventing circumvention. But the result has been now where we are after speech now is that the parties and the candidates that they have 
in a sense, are in a weaker position than the people who are in the super PACs. Let me ask a question that relates to contribution limits and contributions to super PACs, contributions to speech, big speech, if you will. With contribution limits where they are and individuals being able to give as much as they like to super PACs or corporations can do whatever they like, if we got rid of contribution limits for candidates, would we actually have a more competitive process between PAC, super PACs themselves and candidates? And would contributions to super PACs then be able to perhaps nudge candidates in particular ways to one position or another? I think it's likely that that would be the case, yeah. And I think it's also one of the, insofar as Citizens United and Speech Now are sustained, and we certainly expect they will be. My view in, in the sense is that for 30 or 40 years, politics really didn't work on the side of freedom of speech because the incentives to sort of constrain the speech of your opponents were very strong. But now I think we're in a different dynamic in which uh, the insiders, people, particularly the parties, at some point are going to have to say, well, it would be better if we can just reform it in a way that opens it up and perhaps with disclosure. And there's these distinctions aren't drawn. So you would see we may get to – I mean sounds – for someone who lived through McConnell versus Federal Election Commission to be sitting here saying, well, we may well get to a very deregulated system by 2013-14 – pretty strange thing to say. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think probably the biggest factor right now is the fact that candidates are effectively at a competitive disadvantage. All these other groups, super PACs and corporations can now spend as much money as they want. And here are the candidates kind of being hoisted by their own petard, right? They instituted these limits and now they've realized that what they've mainly done is prevented themselves from being able to compete with all these other voices. So if there's any one thing that will undo the laws from here on out. I think it's that. I think they'll get religion in a sense and say, okay, you know, if we can't beat them, join them, and that'll free up the system. So the candidates have created a system that uh, laid the ground for its own destruction. Yeah. So let's talk about sort of the horror stories that have been predicted that will come about because the system of campaign finance, that is speech, big speech, as I'll call it repeatedly, will allow. A lot of people say that, look, you allow this money to be spent in this manner, it will direct candidates to, I don't know, sort of a Manchurian sort of sleeper position where they get elected and then they are essentially agents of the people who have spent money to endorse their candidacy. Well, that's, uh, of course, a very old argument. This is the corruption argument that uh, they become agents of these super PACs. We should say that this has been said for a long time. The evidence of it was always pretty weak inside the system. We do have some evidence from the past about uh, multi-million dollar corporate and individual contributions. The soft money era was like that. The money went to the parties. It's not exactly the same, but you could to draw some conclusions from that. I looked at that uh, data for my book, The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform, and what struck me about it was that mostly, almost all of the cases, a stunning number of cases, everybody, the multi-million dollar givers or even the six-figure givers, gave it all to one party or the other. These are people, generally speaking, in institutions that are highly, intensely organized but also interested in politics. They're not dividing the money between, you know, trying to figure out who's going to win and, and then trying to get favor with them, which you would expect if they would be hedging their bets. What you see is they're all in 
for the Dems or the red or blue. And I think we're seeing that again, these $10 million, you know, these are people attracted by a person, a friend, or the ideas that person has, and the, it's going toward the ideas. The ideas are not being determined by the money. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I think the evidence for corruption is slim to non-existent. And given the amount of money that the federal government spends, if the real purpose of making political contributions was really to control what government does, the amounts of money flooding into political campaigns would be 10 times what they are. More recently, President Obama, in trying to talk about how he would like some changes to the election system, has talked about Citizens United, that he has, in fact, called out the Supreme Court during a State of the Union address for that decision. He has spoken, John, you and I have talked about this, about what voter preferences otherwise would before this money came in to influence their preferences to something sort of as if these preferences that voters had were precious and needed to be preserved somehow and all the money can do is sully them and pervert them. Yeah, the idea here, and this again is an old one if you've stu- gone back over the ground from the 70s and 80s and onward. The idea is that people have views before the process, before the democratic debates, and then uh, the money comes in and these people get fooled and it all goes toward uh, whatever these uh, nefarious uh, funders want. Among other things, the assumption that there's these pure views to begin with and those should be affirmed and they're being perverted by the spending. The evidence is not there, but it's just a, it's also just not the way the process should work. I mean, you want people, you have freedom of speech so that you have a debate and so people hear different points of view and you don't have the government limiting that. And then people are supposed to make up their minds and we may wish that they did a better job and tried harder and all of that. However, that's their job. It is what Chief Justice Roberts said is that the censor, you know, is the voters, the individuals. If they don't want to hear it, if they don't like the idea, that's their role. It's not the Federal Election Commission or Congress. Yeah, the whole point of free speech is to be able to convince people to accept your ideas or not accept them in the political arena. That means trying to influence the outcome of elections. People make up their minds as they go. I mean, that's what freedom is all about. President Obama also draws this distinction between people who are engaging in politics out of self-interest versus people who are engaging in politics out of public interest, out of uh, beneficence. So how do you evaluate that? Well, uh, what I found when I was, again, doing research for my book was this is a very old progressive idea. And it's, it goes back actually beyond progressivism. to It's rooted in German ideas of bureaucracy and how the bureaucracy relates to what's called civil society. We would call the market. That is that there's all of this self-interest going on over there and then the the beomter, the bureaucrat or the progressive intellectual has the larger picture in mind. And you see how this transfers down through history. These people are out there fighting and they've got self-interest and this money was made with profit making. The implicit idea here is that the people that should be ruling are not even the elected officials. It's sort of this all-seeing guardian in a way that uh, who knows the public good. And these ideas are just, I mean, they're powerfully anti-democratic ideas and they're not liberal at all in the sense of freedom of speech or freedom of association. Yeah, people who want to take the reins of power always have a way of defining their ideals and their views as in the public interest and everybody else's as out of the public interest. 
I think, and John can correct me if I'm wrong about this, this is the where the idea of special interests comes from. I think that was a term that kind of was coined in the progressive era. And it meant essentially anybody who's opposed to the ideals of people who claim that they're in the public interest. And I mean, you can look at that from both sides. But every interest that you oppose is always an outside special interest that's trying to nefariously take the reins of politics and and ruin the country. So what are we seeing in 2012 here? Uh, Newt Gingrich, of course, famously had a a super PAC come to his aid and it helped him for a while. Rick Santorum also. How is this uh, new landscape playing out? Well, in some states, uh, super PAC spending is a significant part of all spending. I think that what we would say, you know, Bradley Smith raised the question, what would the world look like without speech now? And he says, and I agree with him, that it's easy to think what it would look like. Newt Gingrich would be back home in Georgia, uh, would be finished, his race. So would Rick Santorum. Romney would definitely be the nominee and with only Ron Paul really still in it. However, Mitt Romney would be getting ready for a fall race in which the president had perhaps $750 million and he had perhaps $350, $400 million maybe. There would be, in other words, a huge gap. This doesn't uh, reflect well on the president and his criticisms of super PACs because most people, I guess, don't realize that he's arguing for something that would, in fact, give him an enormous financial advantage in the fall if he got rid of super PACs. Now, uh, you said that Romney would clearly be the nominee. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in areas where candidates pretty much have a lock on their offices, say for U.S. House, they largely run – for all intents and purposes, unopposed. How much do those voters in the final analysis know about those incumbents? Well, uh, the answer is, generally speaking, not much. It's been shown to the extent these things can be shown by political science that really what you want if you want knowledgeable voters is you want lots of spending. High spending races imply entry, competition, often quality challengers. And the two things are that uh, everyone gets better informed. And the second thing is the people who were in the starting position less well-informed gain more knowledge from these kinds of high-spending campaigns than the people who are already fairly informed. So there's a kind of Rawlsian element to this. The least advantaged in knowledge, political knowledge, get better off by the high spending. So this is why... In particular, this it's beginning to annoy me again, which is the negative ads are being – and the, the world is coming to an end. It's very amusing things. I mean some people had great uh, grave concerns because Mitt Romney's campaign said of Newt Gingrich that he has more baggage than an airline's. Well, you know, the republic is finished now. I mean that someone could say something like that about a, a candidate. It's foolish beyond belief. The accusations made by some of our founding fathers at each other sort of make these uh, these statements pale by comparison. Yeah, negative campaigns have been around since the founding of the republic. And frankly, it's a good way to learn about somebody. It's a good way to place in you know, sharp relief the distinctions between two candidates is to criticize somebody. Uh, you know, we find that as lawyers. That's why you have an adversarial system in law. So the court can be really well informed about exactly what the difference is between these two parties is. I want to end on this note. My friend and former boss, now a member of Congress, John Yarmuth from Louisville, Kentucky, he is among several people who have filed constitutional amendments that in essence would clarify that spending 
on, say, printing a newspaper cannot be construed as speech. Whether or not the speech does actively endorse a candidate or not, since he is a former newspaper publisher, I find that uh, sort of a particularly cynical approach to dealing with speech that you don't like or you find objectionable or you find troubling in some way. How do you all evaluate that? Well, this is the sort of thing that makes you glad that the uh, founders had the foresight to make the amendment process, you know, quite difficult. Uh, Mike Rappaport, a, a law professor, says this is a way one of the things it does is give you higher quality amendments that can get through that process. You know, I mean, 11 percent of the population uh, have confidence in Congress right now. And yet these amendments are saying we should basically give plenary power to Congress over political speech. That is the people who criticize them, who will challenge them for office. It is a bad idea beyond belief. I mean it, it challenges the notion – the very notion of pamphleteering or blogging or producing videos for YouTube. These are communications that cost money, that takes resources to create. And it does it in an obscure way, which is what I find most offensive about it. That is to say – if you go to people and say, you know, that guy's – I don't like what that guy's saying. The government should stop him from talking. Well, people sort of back off on that. But if you say, ah, well, of course he can say anything he wants to. But the money, now that can be controlled by Congress because Congress has plenary power over commerce, over coins, making and so on. Surely they can just control the money. But the speech not, isn't involved at all. Well, of course, that makes it easier for people to not have to face the consequences of what they are endorsing, which yeah. is anti-speech. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 the fact of the matter is it takes money to speak to a large audience, and the more the larger the audience, the more money it takes. I mean, that's why we're sitting before microphones and expensive equipment right now to try to get this message out. That's true from the smallest you know, neighborhood election. You need posters. You need magic markers. You need printers. You need pamphlets. You need all that stuff up to the largest national election. You put a limit on the money, you're going to limit the speech. I think the issue is do you trust Congress for some reason with this power and particularly when the power is obscured in the way that we're not talking about what we're really doing here. It's insidious. All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. They say the press is only free if you own one. Let's not live, give Congress control over who can own one. Steve Simpson, senior attorney at the Institute for Justice, also litigated the Speech Now decision, which you can uh, – I guess you can look up some of that information at speechnow.org. Yeah, at or our website, uh, ij.org. All right. And John Samples, director of the Cato Institute Center for Representative Government and author of The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform, which you can order at our website, cato.org. The 2010 election swept many new people into office, bound largely by a commitment to reduced spending, reduced debt, and smaller government. This Tea Party movement represented a grassroots return to adherence to the Constitution. The American Spectator's John Fund at a February Cato Institute book forum detailed some of what came before the Tea Party. I was talking with a congressman late last year, an old grizzled veteran who'd been on Capitol Hill for decades. And last, starting in 2010, this fellow showed up at Tea Party after Tea Party, basically trying to embrace the movement. And I knew his record well enough. And I knew that, you know, you could walk through his deepest adherence to the Tea Party and not get your ankles wet. So I asked him, you know, what is this all about? And he gave me one of the finest answers you can in a democracy. He said, remember that old story about the politician who's up in his office building and he's looking down at the street 
and he sees a parade going by and they're having signs and they're shouting slogans and they're demanding something. And he says, this job of a smart politician is to figure out what they're saying, get down there on the street, get in front of the line, and start pretending to lead them. <laughs> and that's what the Tea Party has been about a large part. It's not just what average Americans have been doing, it's what they've convinced people who have lost sight of liberty, lost sight of adherence to the Constitution, that they temporarily have to go back to the uh, oath that they took in, when they were sworn into office. I grew up in California, as Ed did. I remember Ronald Reagan as governor. I got to meet Ronald Reagan several times. He inspired me personally, but I was never a slavish admirer. I actually can remember writing some critical articles about Reagan's tenure as governor. But Ronald Reagan was a genius in many respects, and one of them was anticipating where politics was going. In the spring of 1977, after Reagan had lost the Republican nomination to Gerald Ford and after the Republicans had been crushed in that ensuing November election, Reagan had a reunion with his former staffers, and he said, I know you're all despondent, but you should be of good cheer. Liberals win, even use the word statists, win when two things happen. We have abandoned our principles. We have forgotten why people elected us to come to Washington to do certain things. And the left runs people who campaign as moderates, campaign as safe. He said, we just had Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter capitalized on the uh, scandals of Richard Nixon, everything from Watergate to Legion price controls. And Jimmy Carter ran as a moderate. So we lost. He said, you should be of good cheer for the following reason. He can't govern as a moderate. Even if he wanted to, the people who pay the bills of the Democratic Party, the unions, and the Democratic leadership in Congress won't let him. So he will govern from the left. If he governs from the left, he will fail, because people who govern from the left, their policies always fail. If he fails, people will notice. If they notice, people will get upset. They'll form protest movements. They'll start going into the streets. At that point, you have a chance to redeem yourself and go out and have a conversation with the American people and say, we've learned from our mistakes. We can, once again, provide you with some answers. We can have a conversation about why you should vote for us again. And sure enough, Jimmy Carter was proven to Reagan's prediction. Within three years, we had 21% interest rates. We had 12% inflation. We had 9% unemployment. We had gas lines. We had the Soviet Union on the march around the world. And we had hostages in Iran and a whole plague of problems. Ronald Reagan was able to go around the country with a, one of the greatest lines in American politics. He said... Recession is when your neighbor loses his job or her job. A depression is when you lose your job. And recovery is when Jimmy Carter loses his job. <laughs> Ronald Reagan also leaped on the tax revolt, which was one of the origination points for the Tea Party. People forget this. Ronald Reagan opposed two of Howard Jarvis's property tax initiatives before Prop 13. He opposed them. We had to balance the budget. We couldn't afford the revenue loss. It was when he saw the tax revolt rise up after Jimmy Carter was elected that he became the leader and the advocate for the tax revolt. Ronald Reagan anticipated where the country was going and decided it was time to lead it. Well, even in Reagan's declining years before Alzheimer's sapped his vitality, he made one other prediction. After Bill Clinton won in 1992, he had one final reunion with his staff in Los Angeles. Larry Kudlow was there. He tells me this story. Reagan said, I will remind you of what I said 16 years earlier. We lost because the people we elected to office abandoned their principles. Read my lips, no new taxes. 
President Bush had abandoned his tax pledge. And they just ran somebody who was able to campaign successfully as a moderate, Bill Clinton. And welfare as we know it was his slogan. But Clinton, he said, will not govern from the center because the unions and the Democratic leadership in Congress won't let him. And sure enough, Clinton, with his health care plan, the largest tax increase in American history, the BTU tax, which is a precursor to cap and trade, Clinton lurched to the left. And sure enough, the country noticed, and there were protests in the streets, another previous rendition of the Tea Party. Well, it seems that every 16 years, the American people forget what happens when you elect a liberal president and a liberal Congress at the same time, and they do that. They elect that. And we have just had that with Obama in 2008, capitalizing on the mistakes and failures of the Republican Congress and previous administration, and, of course, running someone who said he would unite us and govern from the sensible center, Barack Obama. How's that been working out for us? Well, that's why we come to the Tea Party. The Tea Party awakened Americans, millions of Americans, who believed in a fundamental freedom, which is the freedom to be left alone. The vast majority of people want to forget about politics most of the time and get on with the serious business of living. That means their family, that means their career, that means their faith, that means their hobbies, it means all kinds of things, and they don't see a difference between the two major parties. Therefore, they don't usually get involved. It's that that allows the left to achieve the kind of electoral successes that Barack Obama did. What Barack Obama's immediate lurch to the left with the stimulus package and with health care reform, it awakened a bunch of Americans that they could no longer forget about politics and leave it to the politicians. They had to take personal charge of their country, its responsibilities. They had to actually get involved. That's the single biggest lesson of the Tea Party. People actually deciding, we're not going to shift our responsibility to someone else. We're going to take responsibility. And millions of Americans did that. So much so that in the exit polls of 2010, after the midterm elections, 40% of the people who voted, not 40% of all voters, remember elections are decided by those who vote, 40% of the people who voted said, I ally myself with the principles of the Tea Party. That was more than the 36% who identified with the Democratic Party, and it was more than the 36% who identified themselves with the Republican Party. Now, we're now in a non-political season. The presidential election hasn't heated up for most Americans yet. They don't have to make the final choice. So the Tea Party is a little more quiet than it was in 2010. But when it comes to voting, I predict the Tea Party will once again prove its relevance and will be a force strong and united and it is going to stand up for the same principles that I think were so successful in the 2010 election. Greece is in trouble, to put it mildly, but the fiscal crisis gripping a small group of European countries threatens the economies of the larger European Union. Default is an unsavory option, but there's a growing opinion that it may be inevitable. Cato Senior Fellow Doug Bandow discusses the debt crisis at a policy forum in February. Two years ago, the Lisbon Treaty created a stronger, more powerful European Union with a president and a foreign minister. In some sense, it seemed the continent had answered Henry Kissinger's derisive question, what is the phone number for Europe? But today, it's not clear who answers the phone if the phone rings. Europe's the most important economic aggregation in the world, the continent hosts several of the world's most venerable democracies. Europe's historical and cultural ties circle the globe. But the EU, 
these days at least, has not uh, lived up to the lofty ambitions of many of the people who dominate continental politics today. Europe remains a geographic conglomeration much more than a political unit in the most basic sense. And while the common economic market remains huge, the continent isn't functioning very well in economic terms these days. Indeed, there are concerns that uh, far from opening up markets, now regulations and controls actually are more likely to promote redistribution, in many ways I think the objective of old Europe, as it has been called, rather than economic growth, which is probably more important to new Europe, as some call it. Moreover, there is no effective common foreign policy, let alone a unified military. Most European politicians advocate further political consolidation in Brussels, but they disagree on specifics. In contrast, the European public seems increasingly skeptical of what the European project has become. But of course, the EU's immediate challenge is preserving what unity it has achieved, most notably the Eurozone. Greece is moving towards a second bailout, but violent protests have engulfed that uh, country. In Athens, uh, I would not want to stay in Constitution Square. I've actually stayed at a couple of hotels there, but these are not good times to be there, since all the demonstrations occur right outside of the Parliament building. And uh, private creditors continue to resist accepting a de facto default by Greece. Official creditors don't want to take losses. And while European Union negotiators finally approved the agreement early this morning, the question remains, will it work? The group Open Europe, a London-based organization skeptical of many of the EU uh, activities, raised 10 questions about uh, the question of the agreement. Will the Greek center hold, it asked? Are Greek government commitments credible? Uh, How will the Eurozone fund the money needed for the restructuring? Will the uh, European Central Bank participate uh, to the degree necessary? How many private bondholders are still holding out? A number of questions which raise very significant issues in terms of sustainability and effectiveness of this agreement. No wonder then that there's official pessimism that in fact this agreement is going to work. In fact, one finds analysts at least privately increasingly believing that an official Greek default is inevitable. The only question then is whether Athens can default and stay within the Eurozone And one gets the sense that increasingly some uh, of uh, Greece's neighbors really don't care what the answer is. They want to get by the immediate crisis, and they really don't worry so much about the ultimate disposition of Greece. Moreover, it's not clear it's going to be possible to contain the crisis. Moody's recently downgraded Portugal, which many fear is heading towards a Greek-style crash. The agency reduced ratings for Spain and Italy as well and cut the outlook for France and Great Britain. A number of countries in Europe face extraordinary pressure merely making their normal borrowings, let alone financing yet another bailout of their own countries that are in trouble. And help is not likely to come from overseas. There had been hope that the bailout fund could be funded by foreign nations and private investors, including China, but no one is very uh, enthusiastic about potentially throwing good money after bad investments already. International Monetary Fund is not playing as big a role as some had hoped because people worry about overexposure there. And the United States is not likely to come up with any money, at least directly. Already it's entered the election campaign with Republicans targeting the IMF and whether American money is going to be going to bail out those improvident Europeans. But I think more fundamentally, many of the folks committed to the European project in a more unified continent fear the impact of a Eurozone collapse on the EU. If the Eurozone shrinks, or at worst collapses, expansion of the EU seems likely to halt, 
and it's hard to imagine an expansion of EU authority. The idea of a European nation state or something akin to that would likely be moribund if not formally buried. President Obama has shown no desire to cut spending to levels that would sustainably reduce debt over time. And over the next decade, the president wants to spend $6 trillion just on interest on the debt. Cato Institute budget fellow Tad DeHaven argues that three of the four GOP candidates are also proposing the U.S. go into more debt. He spoke at a Capitol Hill briefing in February. Just say a few words about the Obama budget. Obviously, at this point in the game, if you're a fan of limited government, you know you're not going to get much. And once again, you didn't. You basically had a, a, got a campaign document. The president's proposing to spend $47 trillion over the next 10 years. $6 trillion of that's just going to be interest alone. The publicly held debt as a share of gross domestic product, 80%, and that's throughout the next 10 years. Spending as a percentage of GDP continues to be at artificially high levels in between 23-24%. That's much higher than the previous 40-year average of about 18%. Now, of course, the president puts out a, a list of proposed spending cuts. This is a gimmick that President Bush came up with at a time when people were complaining that the W. Bush administration wasn't getting, you know, coming up with much in the way of spending cuts. Obama promises to cut $24 billion in what he calls savings. Obviously, though, if you're going to spend more money than you spent last year, you're really not saving anything. Most of the cuts are of the government efficiency variety. We're going to eliminate waste, fraud, and abuse, get rid of duplication. There's really nothing that inhibits or reduces the scope of government, which is a much more important issue. I'll say, unfortunately, the government efficiency stuff is often what Republicans justify spending cuts on, and, and I'll get into that in a little bit. You have discretionary caps as a result of the agreement to increase the debt ceiling. As a result, discretionary spending certainly looks to be a little bit better than it was going to be. Unfortunately, as you all might know, discretionary spending is a relatively small and shrinking part of the federal budget. Most of the money is in entitlement programs. The president proposes to do virtually nothing about entitlement spending. You have the issue of sequestration coming up. Again, I'll see it when I believe it. Already, the Republicans have spent a lot of time uh, complaining about the cuts to military spending. If I'm a betting man, I wouldn't be surprised if the Republicans trade higher discretionary spending uh, in exchange for higher military spending to uh, get around the sequestration. Or they'll just go down the road of uh, pushing these cuts out using the baseline, make the cuts happen in the future in exchange for spending now. This is the gimmick that they just pulled off, both the Republicans and Democrats, to extend unemployment benefits and to continue the temporary cut in Social Security taxes. Will these caps hold? Probably not. Look, the, the bottom line is the federal government can spend money on pretty much anything it wants to. So even if they put these caps uh, in any other such budget reforms, suppose we have another Hurricane Katrina, war with Iran, war with somebody at this point, Another economic downturn. Look, even with taxes, Republicans justify tax cuts on the Keynesian premise that it spurs consumption and thus spurs economic growth. And that being said, even though most Republicans were opposed to the stimulus packages to get the economy going, most Republicans helped themselves behind the scenes to the various programs that was spending stimulus money. So we kind of know what we're getting or what we have with President Obama. One question is, what happens if Obama loses? 
and a Republican wins. Probably safe to say Newt's uh, out and is probably down to Santorum, Romney, and, and perhaps Paul. Towards the end of the year, I went around the various campaign websites and I looked at what are these guys and gals specifically proposing to cut? Because that, to me, that's the big issue right now with the Republicans is you know, not just cutting spending in general, but specifically, what are you going to cut? What are you going to do? You say you're for a balanced budget. You're all for voting for a balanced budget amendment. But what are you going to actually do, even if you had your balanced budget amendment, to get, say, from 24% spending of GDP down to 18%? That's when you hear crickets. If you look at the spending proposals, at least on the campaign websites, basically Ron Paul's the only one who's promising serious cuts. He actually put a budget together. Romney, not very specific. And in fact, you can see where there's going to be spending increases. Newt's interesting. You might have some reforms. But again, and then Santorum, who has a, a record of supporting things like No Child Left Behind, Medicare Prescription Drug, you know, so and there was a report last week put out by another budget group that said if you looked at the four candidates, three of them are proposing more debt because they want to cut taxes but continue to spend. So even if you have a Republican in a White House, it seems to me that if you look at the folks who are the leading contenders, it might be George Bush all over again. So assuming most of you guys and gals here are congressional staffers, I think it's going to be really important that your bosses be the ones to get specific. And right now, again, you hear on Capitol Hill from the Republicans in particular, because let's face it, the Democrats can never spend enough money, but what you hear from the Republican side is we need a balanced budget amendment. Even worse, I'm hearing stuff in now about biennial budgeting, budgeting every two years because suddenly the government's going to get religious about oversight, which is an absolutely horrible idea. So our recommendation is get specific. And let me just take one issue and sort of explain what I mean here. Corporate welfare, subsidies to businesses. I'm currently working on an update of, of Cato's numbers, paper that should be out ASAP. And basically, we spent about $100 billion subsidizing businesses. So if your boss is going to take on a program, have a laundry list. And you can't just do the waste, fraud, and abuse stuff or the duplication. You have to focus on what should the government be doing, what shouldn't the government be doing. And so, for instance, business subsidies to stored economic activity. Well, if you're not familiar with the Federal Housing Administration, get familiar with it because a bailout's coming. Because basically the FHA has stepped in and is backing all these mortgages in order to keep the housing market afloat. And they're running up massive losses that are soon going to be on the taxpayer hook. At the same time, you're continuing to shove people into houses who shouldn't be in houses. That causes problems and losses in the economy. Harms other businesses and consumers. Small Business Administration, perfect example. Only 1% of small businesses out there actually get SBA loans. So what that means is the other 99% of small businesses are basically disadvantaged by these government programs that are helping subsidize their competitors. Privilege is special interests. Look, nobody knows this better than you guys. What do you see coming into your office all the time? Do you ever have a taxpayer come in, sit down, and say, you know what, that Economic Development Administration, what a waste of money. It's a relic from the 1960s. We need to get rid of this. No. You have lobbyists coming in all the time. You have folks from back home. In Washington is an echo chamber. It's a constant bubble where you're constantly said spend, spend, spend. And again, if you make the argument, if your boss is willing to you know, step out and say, no, there's the broader public to keep in mind. No, we understand this is important to you, but it does damage the economy. It disadvantages you. That's the argument you have to start making. Two more quick points. Government and business collusion creates an unhealthy relationship. 
look at TARP. That's a very unpopular, and it really galvanized public perception that government and business is, is way too close. But a lot of the people that made the decisions to hand out our money to these firms on Wall Street and these other financial firms, they were there. And then they come up to the Hill, and then when all's said and done, they'll be back. And so, again, you have this unhealthy relationship. Last and most important, it violates the Constitution. I'll give you one program for an example, Community Development Block Grants. I'm sure you guys are all getting stuff from local officials back home saying about it's so important that we have these federal subsidies. Look, things like wine bars, things like shopping centers, that's what this federal money is going towards. And if you tell me that that somehow is the General Welfare Clause or is Interstate Commerce, a Jack Link's beef jerky company in Wisconsin getting subsidies from the Community Development Fund or a wine bar in Connecticut or a brewery in Michigan, then, you know, it's not there. So focus on the specifics, put together the arguments, do the legwork. We're helping you do the legwork with the information and research. If you go to downsizinggovernment.org, we're going department by department, program by program, and we're putting together the numbers and the arguments and the research that will help you make the case to get rid of this stuff. But again, going forward, it's time to stop with the generalities, get specific, or else we're going over a cliff. The United States has been at war for more than a decade in Afghanistan. The story is not one of advancing toward an end state. And a growing chorus of prominent conservatives are now coming to the conclusion that there is nothing approaching victory to be had there. According to Cato policy analyst Malou Innocent, conservatives should be among the most vociferous against the war today. She spoke at the Cato Institute's Benefactors Summit in February. Now as for the claim that withdrawal will undercut progress, to examine that claim, I think it's important to understand what progress was originally supposed to mean. President Obama tripled the number of troops in Afghanistan as part of his new strategy that was supposed to sort of stress the importance of protecting the Afghan people. And the Center for a New American Security, which is a defense think tank in Washington that informed President Obama's 60-day review of the war, their report right before he tripled the number of troops said that failure to protect the Afghan people would indicate mission failure. So let's see if we've actually been protecting the Afghan people. According to the UN mission in Afghanistan, 2011 was the fifth straight year in which civilian casualties rose. Now keep in mind that insurgents were responsible for 77% of, ins of, insur of uh, civilian deaths last year. But we have made it our mission to protect the Afghan people. Let me repeat that. We made it our mission to protect the Afghan people. Now I'm proud to say that the Cato Institute has been very influential in this debate. And our message is very simple. America has limited interests in Afghanistan. Those limited interests can be achieved relatively cheaply, and current policies are wasteful and counterproductive. Now, someone who appreciates our message about the exorbitant costs of war in both blood and treasure is Grover Norquist, the president of Americans for Tax Reform. He moderated a Cato panel back in 2010 about conservatives in the war in Afghanistan. His panel featured Representative Tom McClintock, Dana Rohrabacher, and John J. Duncan, Jr. More recently, Norquest brought up Reagan and Lebanon on why we should extricate ourselves from Afghanistan. And he said, quote, Ronald Reagan decided not to occupy Lebanon when our Marines were hit. He didn't say, ah, we will now stay and manage your civil war for you for the next 15 years, unquote. Now, the Cato Institute is unique because it has robust conversations about why the war is a threat to conservative values, why the war is fiscally irresponsible, 
why the war is a wasteful expenditure of taxpayer dollars, and why no more American lives and no more innocent Afghan lives should be lost in the pursuit of a strategy with, that is not connected to our national interest. Now, George Will, a friend of Cato, he wrote an op-ed uh, a while back that said, uh, basically entitled, Time for the U.S. to Get Out of Afghanistan, and said, quote, nation building would be impossible even if we knew how, unquote. He advocated a substantially reduced presence in Afghanistan and has consistently been against nation building. At the Cato Institute's 2006 Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty, Will equated nation building to orchid building, orchids the flower. And he was saying that orchids, like nations, are complicated organic growths that aren't built. And that's definitely true. Now, I don't know, hopefully you can read this. I don't know if you can, but I'll read it to you. This email came from a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Marines to me, to my email box. It came right after I wrote a piece in the Daily Caller. It was right after Osama bin Laden, or as I like to call him, OBL. Right after OBL got a double tap to the skull and his body was dumped into the ocean, soprano style, and turned into fish food. I argued that the Taliban and Al-Qaeda can be separated and that we can deal with Al-Qaeda through uh, targeted counterterrorism missions rather than a broader counterinsurgency campaign. And this lieutenant colonel wrote, quote, good article, Miss Innocent. Thank you for your contributions to the national debate. Refreshing, unquote. And I thought that was pretty cool. And I include it because Chris and I, we have very close personal friends who have served in the military and who are still serving in the military. And I'm sure you in the audience know people who do serve in the military. And our troops have taken the fight to the enemy. They have performed magnificently. And their fellow comrades have been killed in the process. And our soldiers will continue to do everything that our government asks of them. I think that it's time that our government stops asking. Now, after I took some jaunts to Afghanistan and Pakistan, I shared my experiences and insights with over half a dozen members of the House and of the Senate, numerous congressional offices. And in fact, Chris, you've met with probably even more, over a dozen at least, on the military budget. I briefed a Tea Party-backed representative, Jason Chaffetz, of Utah's 3rd District, who, after we spoke, put out a public policy statement demanding that the president withdraw our troops from Afghanistan. I briefed uh, Representative Walter Jones of North Carolina, the Freedom Fries guy. Remember Freedom Fries? He's on our side on this issue. I also briefed Tim Johnson of South Dakota, Rodney Alexander of Louisiana, and of course someone who's sort of always been on our side, Ron Paul of Texas. And most of these gentlemen agreed that there is no end game in Afghanistan and that the mission has no direct relationship to our national security. The 2012 election cycle has no lack of surprises this year. Tucker Carlson, editor-in-chief of The Daily Caller, detailed some of the ins and outs of this year's presidential race at the Cato Institute's Benefactor Summit in February. I am a committed, instinctive libertarian. I'm not a theory guy, so I, I'm, I'm the last person to lecture on Hayek or even on policy. I cover politics, the ugly stuff the practice of getting elected. I've spent the last month and a half on the road with the candidates, and I'll give you a quick overview of where I think we are, and then it'll open up for questions. But you should know that I'm, since I've spent my life in cable news, I'm very uncomfortable if I speak without having people yell at me. So if you disagree with anything that I'm saying, most people hate to be heckled, but I actually enjoy it. It makes me feel right at home. So just shout out, throw a dinner roll. You're not gonna hurt my feelings because obviously, you know, I don't have any at this point. So. Here's the quick overview. Here are the two first really obvious points to make 
about the presidential race. The first is the president is beatable. This was, this is obvious now, this was not obvious a year ago, which is one of the reasons there aren't more people in the presidential race on the Republican side. Incumbents are very hard to beat. And incumbents who are not challenged from within their own party are, well, historically speaking, impossible to beat. No one has ever been beaten who presided over an intact party. And Obama, for all his many faults, has kept his base together fundamentally. The core Democratic base is united behind him. So Republicans looked at this and said, there's no way we can beat this guy. A year later, a bunch of different factors combined, mostly economic, but there are others, to make it obvious that, in fact, you could beat Barack Obama. The latest, I mean, I could throw a thousand polls at you, but the latest and most illustrative in my mind is the Rasmussen poll that came out a couple weeks ago that indicated 49% of likely voters, that is voters who voted last time, probably going to vote again, are absolutely not going to vote for Barack Obama for re-election. Would eat broken glass before doing so. So, you know, you can win mathematically. You wouldn't want to attempt it with a number like that, right? As actually, as one of Obama's top advisors said to me a couple of days ago, if Obama were to run unopposed, he would lose. <laughs> Which would, by the way, be highly entertaining, and I'd be totally for that. Um, the second half of the proposition, though, and the other obvious point is that he's not running unopposed. He's running against a Republican. And this is, at least at this moment, pretty good news for him because the Republican Party, I think well-intentioned though it is, is in a moment of real crisis, organizational crisis, and I think philosophical crisis. The party is really disorganized right now. That's kind of the takeaway from six weeks on the road with the candidates. This is very unusual. Republicans are not disorganized people by their nature. The parties are really not constellations of people who agree with each other philosophically so much as they are groups of people drawn to one another by similar temperaments. This is my theory. So they kind of have the same worldview. Republicans and Democrats have a similar worldview. So Republicans tend to be orderly and hierarchical and punctual and, you know, they're, 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 it's not a chaotic party. Invite a Republican and a Democrat to a dinner party and who shows up on time? Obviously the Republican does. I can't vouch who will be more entertaining, but I can promise you the Republican will be there punctually. So typically their contests unfold in a pretty orderly way. There's a, you know, a Christian right candidate, there's a Wall Street candidate, possibly a libertarian candidate, but you know in the end the oldest guy is going to get the nomination because that's how the party does things. The guy who ran before and lost gets the nomination. And so this year, by those criteria, which are pretty well ironclad, Mitt Romney would have gotten the nomination, basically would have been nailed down weeks ago. By the way, the Republican side is the polar opposite of the Democratic side, which is, in every cycle, utterly chaotic. I mean, it's like Burning Man. You know, it really is. It's a bunch of crazy people in the desert doing, you know, painting their bodies with Diglo paint. I mean, it's just, you never know what could happen, which is why journalists prefer covering the Democratic side. But on the Republican side, there's not a lot of drama. This year, you have seen really an endless list of alternatives to Romney. I mean, I think that's really the way you need to view the last six months, is Republicans searching for someone to displace the inevitable, who from day one has been the guy who's run for the past six years, Mitt Romney. And I'm not in any way attacking Mitt Romney. He is, in a lot of ways, the archetypal Republican candidate. He's the perfect candidate, right? I mean, he's got a pedigree that Republicans like. He's a market guy. He's a social conservative as well, or, or says he is. He's had an impressive career in business at Bain & Company. He looks the part, not a small thing. Looks like the result of some genetic experiment designed to produce the perfect presidential candidate, actually. <laughs> he's got that Easter Island-like head. The candidate with the biggest head wins. This is actually a fact. And it's true in cable news, too. I'm serious. You ever seen Tom Brokaw in person? It's like Mr. Potato Head. The big head works. So you would think, that's science, by the way, not opinion. 
you would think it would have been sewn up, and yet you have seen this almost desperate scramble to find an alternative. And I won't go through the litany because it's kind of depressing and it's, it offers me up too many opportunities for cheap shots, which I can never resist, and I don't want to bore you with all my catty descriptions of the candidates whom I know so very well. But let me just say, some have been more likely than others. And by others, I mean Donald Trump, and so on down the list. It looks now like the campaign is in fact wrapping up, and Gingrich, though he made a valiant stand in South Carolina and won by double digits, is not likely to get the nomination, both because he's running out of money and also because he lacks self-control. I, lack, I have no self-control whatsoever, so I'm not casting aspersions, but it's a, it's a known fact that if you're running a presidential campaign, you ought to have some control over what you say. He has none. What's striking about the collapse of Newt's campaign is that it's a self-immolation rather than the result of the party crushing him. And I know the Newt for President campaign makes the case that the Republican establishment has you know, taken a look at his campaign, they feel threatened, and so they've put it out of business. That's completely false, I can tell you as someone who lives in Washington, because actually, Newt Gingrich is the Washington establishment. He works in the building right next to me, actually. I give speeches with him. And he's a good guy, I like Newt. There's nothing wrong with Newt as a person that I'm aware of. But that's not what happened. The reason the Republican establishment, as I said, didn't put him out of business is because they no longer exist. And that's why there's all this chaos. The Tea Party basically sapped the legitimacy out of the Republican establishment. All the things the Tea Party did, all of them, you know, good in my opinion, I supported the Tea Party, but one of the little discussed effects of the Tea Party movement was to convince rank and file Republican voters that the Republican establishment was not worth listening to. And by the way, they probably weren't worth listening to, I'm not defending them. But it's very hard to run a presidential campaign if nobody's in charge. And I'll give you a specific example, okay? The Ron Paul for President campaign is, in my opinion, the great untold story of the last year. So, and I'm not just saying this, I, I, in full disclosure, I voted for Ron Paul in 1988 when he was running as a libertarian. I know Ron Paul, I like Ron Paul, I'm not endorsing Ron Paul now. But I, you know, I'm open to Ron Paul's ideas, obviously, as a crackpot myself. But there's never been a less likely presidential candidate than Ron Paul. I mean, let's just be completely honest. He's 76 years old. He's elfin. I mean, you could literally like, pick him up and put him in your pocket. He's not, it's great, but he's not like this majestic commanding figure. He goes out of his way not to inspire his audiences. He goes out of his way to tweak the sensibilities of the large bulk of American voters, right? He does. He goes out of his way. And yet, he is pulling 20, 23% in contest after contest. So how is he doing that? It's a fascinating question. It's the core question, I think, of this campaign for a couple of reasons. And I, I thought it might be of interest to you all since some of what he says probably appeals to the large majority of people in this room. There are a couple things to note. First, the Republican, the other Republican candidates have been utterly resistant to learning whatever lessons it is Ron Paul's candidacy holds, which is very, very striking. So I, I've been out on the road, as I said. You go to these events, go to a Michelle Bachman event or Rick Perry event before he imploded. That was really one of the most remarkable. Let me just say, parenthetically, I was at many Rick Perry events. I watched Rick Perry give a speech for 52 minutes. I timed it. And he did not use a single preposition correctly in 52 minutes. <laughs> I'm not saying it disqualifies him for president. I'm just saying that's, that's harder than it sounds. That's not misspeaking. That's actually performance art when you get to that level. And I sort of admired him for it. But anyway, so you go to these different candidates, and the first thing they would say is not Barack Obama's wrecking the economy, the government is taking over. No it would be, this Ron Paul is a danger to the republic. We're attacking Ron Paul. Now look, I, it's totally legitimate 
to find Ron Paul's message repugnant or dangerous even? Okay, fine. But think about the wisdom of expressing that if you're a Republican presidential candidate. Let me put it another way. So Ron Paul should not, by rights, be getting the numbers he's getting, let's say 20%, okay? But he is. So wouldn't a normal person, as the first matter of business, ask himself, why is that? Or I'll put it in retail terms for those of you in business. You own a toothpaste company. You've got 30% market share. The company's been around 100 years. You're happy where you are. Out of nowhere comes an upstart toothpaste brand, and it's brown, and it smells like sewer gas. <laughs> and it instantly gets 20% market share. Is your first instinct to run ads attacking anyone dumb enough to buy that toothpaste? Ah, uh, no. Your first move is to buy a tube and send it to your lab and reverse engineer it, find out what the secret sauce is, and steal it. That's why the market is more efficient than the government. Right? Right. So, you would think, you would think that some of these candidates would say, wow, if this weird guy is getting more voters than I am, maybe I should listen to what he's saying. Uh, but no. The second thing you would think is that it would occur to somebody in the Republican Party that, wait a second, this guy has a very sturdy base of voters who really like him, and they're utterly resistant to not liking him. They've heard the attacks, people dismiss him as crazy. Maybe he is crazy. Like, I'm not vouching for his uncraziness, okay? I'm just saying, if you're a Ron Paul supporter, you've taken abuse for that, and you're supporting him anyway. You are a hard supporter, okay? You're not a fair weather fan at all. So you're probably not any kind of big partisan Republican. You like Ron Paul specifically. You like his ideas. Are you what they call a mobile voter? Could you, if Ron Paul left, would you go with him? Yeah, probably. So here's the point I'm making, very simple. What if Ron Paul goes third party? Or what if he stays in the Republican Party and throws his support behind, let's say, Gary Johnson, who's the two-term Republican governor, former governor of New Mexico who was running as a libertarian. What if Ron Paul threw his support to Gary Johnson and gave Gary Johnson his lists, which are massive? Could Gary Johnson get three points in the general election? Huh, you think? Yeah. Would that absolutely mathematically guarantee Barack Obama's reelection? Yes, it would. This is an existential threat to the Republican nominee. There's no greater. So how do you handle something like this? Well, in a normal year, with a normal political party, there's one solution, and that's a backroom deal. Because by the way, that's what political parties are for. That's what they're for. They're not to tell you what to think. They're to fill rooms with smoke and work out the details, okay? They're for the unsightly machinations you're not supposed to see. That's why we have political parties. I'm serious. And so in a normal year, you would find a trusted emissary, and you would send him over to the Ron Paul campaign, and you would say, in the bluntest possible terms, over steak at the Capitol Grill, you would say, what do you want? What's your price? Ambassador to Belgium? Done. Seriously, you want to be head of the Fed? You want to run Amtrak? We can do that. <laughs> I'm not kidding. This is how it works. This is what parties are for. The collapse of the Republican establishment means there is nobody to do that. There's no consensus on what to do, and there's no one with the authority to authorize that. And so, every, this is actually, if you think of it, those of you who are theology majors or interested in theology, this is the political equivalent of the Protestant Reformation. I'm serious. So the parties are gone, at least on the Republican side, every man is his own priest, okay? Which is actually great, but then, if you study, you remember like the Protestant Reformation was surrounded by a lot of bloodshed because it was a chaotic time. It helps to have some structure. 
Maybe it's philosophically unappealing, but in practical terms, chaos is more unappealing. Okay, that's kind of the hardline truth. And I say this as a libertarian, but it's just, it's just true, so far as I can tell. So Ron Paul is out there, totally uncontrolled. He could sink the Republicans and they're mocking him. Let's consider for a second the appeal of Ron Paul. Now the Ron Paul supporters believe, well, a lot of them believe it's the gold standard and his attacks on the Fed. I would submit with full respect, let me say, that that is actually not the core of his appeal. I think there are a lot of gold standard folks who support Ron Paul. I think there are a lot of people who have great concerns about the expanding power of the Fed. I'm among them who welcome his remarks on that. And by the way, he's unique among the candidates in bringing that up, and it's not a small issue, and amen, good for him. In my view, however, the core appeal of Ron Paul in this cycle is not philosophical. It is to me, but it's not to the many, many, many Ron Paul voters I have interviewed over the past six weeks. It's the fact that they believe Ron Paul tells the unvarnished truth. Now, this seems like the most banal possible observation one could make about politics because, as we know, of course, voters want you to tell the truth, don't they? Ah, oh, that's where you're wrong. They don't. Voters actually almost never want you to tell the truth. They really don't. This year is different. This year is actually unique in my lifetime, or in the 21 years I've been covering politics. This year is totally different. This year, on the Republican side, voters truly yearn for a blunt truth-teller. And they normally don't. They say they do because that's the polite and politic thing to say. I want someone who tells me the truth. Who would admit I want someone to lie to me? Well, that happens I would admit that. Because I actually want people to lie to me quite a bit. Let me just really quickly defend duplicity if I could. I'm not attacking anybody by saying voters don't typically want honesty. I have, an, I'll just brag for a moment since my mother-in-law is here and she can vouch for this. I have a very, I would say, unusually happy marriage. And one of the reasons I have such an unusually happy marriage is because my wife tells me things that aren't true at my request, often. <laughs> I have asked her to, and being the sweet person she is, she has acceded to my request. I, for instance, have no interest in knowing if I screw something up on television. I don't want to know. How was I on TV? You were wonderful. <laughs> Why would I want the one person whose opinion I care about to lacerate me with the truth? And it turns out I wouldn't. And so she lies day in and day out, and I'm grateful for it. And we have had 20 years of really blissful marriage as a result. This is, and by the way, this is not a marriage seminar, I realize, but I recommend that to total sincerity. <laughs> completely works if you can find someone to play along. Um, I'm the last person to know if I have spinach in my teeth, by the way, because you'll never tell me. That is exactly the relationship that voters typically have with their president. They actually don't want to know a lot of the details. In fact, that's the whole point of an executive is that you're hiring someone to take in his hands the cares of the world so you can go about your business and raise your family and work on your marriage and build your business and go about the daily activities that make it worth living. You want to worry about closing the Straits of Hormuz? I don't think you do. That's why you're hiring this guy, right? Right. And so you want, I want, we all have wanted, since the beginning of the modern political era, so far as I know, presidents who impress us with their competence, sufficient that we trust they've got things under control, and to inspire us that things are going to be better in the future. That's what we want. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. This year is different on the Republican side. Let me just say I know the Republican side somewhat better than I know the Democratic side, and I can speak with confidence about the attitudes of its voters. On the Republican side, Republican voters are so afraid that the country has reached, I mean, I don't want to even go on about it because it's too depressing, but your average Republican thinks the country has turned the corner in a very profound way and that things actually aren't going to get better and that this is, it's, the country's in decline. 
And they're panicked about it, as they should be, in my view. And they're so upset about it that they are open to the unvarnished truth. Because actually, this is a kind of key life lesson. Nobody is open to the unvarnished truth before failure. No one who's succeeding ever reassesses what he's doing, ever. Think about it. You ever had success in something? How often do you stop and say, should I really be doing it this way? No. Because your success is self-authenticating, self-validating, right? Of course it's the right thing. It's working. It's only when you fail. It's only when you have no choice but to rethink what you're capable of doing and more to the point what you're incapable of doing that you rethink it. Failure forces re-examination and nothing else does, ever. People go through the motions, they go on corporate retreats. Oh, let's think about what we're doing. Oh, yeah, spare me. Unless you're this close to chapter 11, you're really not going to rethink it. It's true, I'm serious. And in people's personal lives, unless you've truly failed, and not some, you know, I failed to live up to my expectations today, kind of Deepak Chopra failure, but real failure. You know, tanked your business, wrecked your marriage, humiliated yourself in public, been so unsuccessful that your neighbors avert their gaze when you pull into the driveway at night. When there's, no, excuse me, when there's no denying that you are a loser, okay? It's out in the open, everyone knows now. My secret is, is out there. It's only at that moment that you think through what you've been telling yourself for your life up until that point. And, and if I can just say one thing I can't resist, it's only at that point that you think through whether or not the core promise of American life, the thing we tell all our kids is actually true, and that is you can be whatever you want to be. Which, by the way, totally false. It's stupid. Of course you can't be whatever you want to be. Who thought of that? I'd love to be a physicist. I'm not, I don't have a high enough IQ. I mean, like, this we know. I'd love to be a third baseman. I almost spilled my water over. I have no physical coordination. I can't be. So I, like every other human being, takes the basket of abilities I received at birth, and I add to that luck and hard work, right? and experience, and I build what I can out of what I was given innately. That's just the truth, okay? And you never face that truth. You never really have to ask yourself, what can you do, what can't you do, until you fail. And that is the moment America faces right now, actually, because of our fiscal situation. So when the debt becomes bigger than the economy, you, you failed. That's it. We may not be the Republic of Taco Bell yet, but you can see it on the horizon, okay? And Republicans feel at this moment like, you know what? I'm so afraid, I will take anything. Cato University returns to Washington, D.C. this summer. Join us July 29th through August 3rd for one of the Cato Institute's premier programs. Being held at Cato's newly expanded headquarters, you'll have a one-of-a-kind opportunity to explore liberty and the fundamental ideas and values of the American Republic. For more information, visit Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.